0: In this episode, Dr. Nader sits down with Dr. Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein to discuss what is consciousness and what is reality? What do we know and what do we not know? Dr. Goldstein is an acclaimed novelist and brilliant philosopher. She studied philosophy at Barnard and earned her PhD at Princeton University. Her career bridges the cultural divides between the humanities, the arts, and the sciences. She has written several books and won several awards, including the MacArthur Genius Award and the National Humanities Medal, awarded by former President Barack Obama. Professor Goldstein taught at several universities and lectures all over the world. Her first novel, The Mind-Body Problem, was a great success. Nine more books have followed, and now she's also writing and preparing a new book, Seven of these books were fiction, including 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a work of fiction, and two philosophical biographies, Incompleteness, The Proof and Paradox of Kurt Gödel, and Betraying Spinoza, The Renegade Jew Who Gave Us Modernity. Goldstein's latest book is Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. She is an important voice in the current active debates between religion and science.
1: It's so great to have you Dr. Goldstein. You're such an amazing absolutely amazing philosopher, thinker, writer, speaker. So oh, it's a joy you. to be with you. Just uh, a joy. Thank likewise, you for taking the
2: likewise. time. Yeah, we have very much the same obsessions, I think in life.
1: Absolutely.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> for me you're a brilliant absolutely out of this world scientist of knowledge and knower of science from a philosophical perspective you have started your interest in discovering what the world is about with an interest in science and today we want to get to know you not just with all your acclaims and notoriety but through what i think you'd like to be known which is your knowledge your thinking and the care that you give in sharing your knowledge to the world and making life better for everyone. There is no question through reading your books and looking at what you've done that you are truly a seeker of the ultimate reality. And it was beautiful to see how you actually shifted from science to philosophy with a small story that you tell where you asked your teacher who's discussing quantum mechanics, and you ask, what about reality? And they said, oh, this is not a question to be asked. And so you, <laughs> you were kind of disappointed and went to the philosophers, and then they gave you some thinking about that. Having gone through that and through so many transformations and so many beautiful ways and amazing ways, unexpected for somebody's growing up in a very traditional kind of circumstances, And yet your really true search for truth made you go through certain steps of understanding. And for such a grand philosopher, I'd like to start with a grand question. What about reality? (laughs) What did you tell us? (laughs) What do we know, what we don't know, and what do you believe is reality?
2: Mm, I'm very open to, I don't have a very fixed view. I mean, I just know there is a reality and that our species is very much defined by trying to find our place in it, you know, to to know where we are, and what reality wants or doesn't want from us, or if if it's totally indifferent to us. And uh, if it's hostile or friendly or indifferent, anyway, we are the species who would like to get our bearings. And I think that's, I don't know, I think I'm rather proud of our species for that. There's much to be not so proud uh, about our species, but for that, I think it's it's quite wondrous that we evolved apes, are so keen to know our place in reality. So, I mean, that's not answering what I think reality is. I'm very open to this. Like you, I think that consciousness is the key to everything, I mean, obviously. and. And how consciousness fits in with the rest of reality is the great mystery, you know, that uh, uh, Schopenhauer called the world not. And um, we try to untie it. And that's always been my obsession. How can matter accommodate consciousness? How do these fit together? And I'm giving you a lot of questions <laughs> rather than, a, than an answer to what I think reality is but i think i think reality is humbling and in some sense ennobles us um, because we want to know it
1: beautiful it it sounds like mostly the epistemological side of how we know how can we know how much we know the wonderful aspect of us wanting to know and Socrates' ideals and his kleos, his, his understanding of what kleos should be, rather than just fighting and having immortality, but actually to know. And as you mentioned in one of your talks, also Spinoza's idea of even the conatus and all of this, it's wonderful. So if we want to try, let's say this evening, to both of us find what actual reality is without pretending anything but Mm -hmm. just supposing a few things. Is it safe to say take us back to Descartes and say okay there are two things like your daughter Danielle told you when she was young and she said oh she did something wrong or something like that and she said it did it. It's not like her did it but it did Mm -hmm. it. The body did it. (laughs) I found this story wonderful. Uh, and and as an expression of the true sense of duality that even a child intuitively kind of feels, I am not that body, I am something else. My consciousness is there and this body is doing something and like that. So Mm -hmm. we are now more and more, of course, I think philosophers and scientists moving towards a monistic view of reality, let's say at the basis of this, because how does one that interact with the other? What is the causal efficacy of one on the other? And therefore, I guess you are a monist in some ways in, oh, yeah. or in many ways.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm open to dualism, but it seems to me the evidence is all going towards monism of, of one sort or another.
1: So do you incline to think that it is the physical that is primary or more inclined towards consciousness?
2: So here's my intuition. Matter is the great mystery. I'm an anti-reductionist. I don't think that physics, as it's been practiced since Galileo, the beginning of physics in the 17th century, can accommodate the inner being of, of consciousness. I think our knowledge of matter is very skimpy and that we have to get to it by way of mathematics. That was the great insight of the 17th century. It's wondrous that abstract mathematics a great abstraction can give us the structure of matter, but it gives us relational properties. It doesn't give us the whole of matter. It doesn't give us the intrinsic properties of matter. And so one one of my arguments against dualism is I feel we can never be in a position to say, oh, it's not matter unless we know the complete story of matter. And we could never know that. And I think our reliance on mathematics is a reason to doubt that we know the whole story of matter. One of my uh, physics professors at, at Princeton, Eugene Wigner, spoke about the amazement, the astonishment that mathematics can tell us anything at all about matter. I mean that this is the uh, astonishing efficacy of mathematics and telling us anything about matter. I don't think it tells us everything, and I think it leaves out intrinsic qualities. And I think among those intrinsic qualities is consciousness. I think there's a kind of proto-consciousness in matter, but we can't get to it. And the only reason we know about it is because we are matter that is conscious. So that's a conclusion I would be prepared to argue for, but I'm extremely open about almost everything except reductionism. This I know can't be true. The other thing I know can't be true is that those who deny that consciousness exists. This is to me the most absurd.
1: <laughs> then, it, yeah, then it's the end his group and...
2: <laughs> yeah, this, this to me is like, you have to be very, very smart to argue something so stupid.
1: Yeah, this is really like negating things and relegating them to some outer force or outer thing and just the angel did it or somebody else did it. And it seems like going into that kind of argument, which will not satisfy philosophers like yourself of high integrity of thinking and not saying, oh, it's an illusion, it doesn't exist anyway.
2: But an illusion is consciousness itself. So, I mean, it's just a self-negating absurdity. It's just, uh, yeah.
1: yeah. Wonderful. I really delighted to hear this because I think the heart problem of consciousness is a fallacious kind of statement. I would rather say the heart problem of physicality going along with what you say in a sense. And it's almost a dogmatic belief that physicality is the real thing. And consciousness through which we see everything, we experience everything, we see the physical, we experience it, is kind of decided to be the primary thing and consciousness is something that emerges from that. So I think the hard problem of consciousness should be the hard problem of physicality and my logic for that is that We have two choices in monism, either you take consciousness or mind matters, mind aspect and or the physical, and both have arguments for them. So I want to ask you, do you have arguments against, for example, the fact that consciousness could be the primary aspect of reality? you say you're open but when you take the problem of god you can say okay well i have arguments like why there is suffering why there is this why things don't go wrong but what about the argument of consciousness being the thing
2: well i do think that physical bodies situated in space time exist i think they're composed of elementary particles and moving about in quantum mechanical ways, and that they're somewhat, you know, remote from us in the way that consciousness isn't. We know the nature of consciousness because we're conscious, you know, we, we inhabit it. There's nothing I know more intimately what it's like to be something, to be conscious. You know, it seems to me that uh, what physics has been discovering has been, you know, the nature of matter. I don't know how to interpret physics if it's not discovering the nature of matter. And I think that our higher forms of consciousness, self-consciousness, I mean, all of this incredible complexity of which we're capable, you know, arises out of unconscious matter with hidden properties that would explain it. Uh, To me, it's amazing that we know anything at all about matter. As I've said, you know, that mathematics could give us anything at all. But yeah, it's a a strong intuition that unconscious material things do exist with many hidden properties that can give rise in the right way to consciousness. I mean, we can go various ways. You know that the world, ultimately, it's matter that gives, (laughs) gives rise to consciousness or it's consciousness that gives rise to a kind of illusion of matter. And that seems too complicated for me. I want the simpler the simpler explanation. I mean, would you say that material things are a kind of illusion?
1: No, absolutely not. Actually, in my book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, I argue strongly that it's not an illusion and that the concept of illusion which is maya in terms of the ancient tradition like vedic tradition hinduism and even buddhism etc is just one aspect of interpretation of reality what i see is that reality is in layers and that whatever we experience is one aspect of consciousness experiencing another aspect of consciousness an infinite number of ways so This is the hard problem actually of physicality. If you start with the point of view that consciousness is all there is, which I feel is the most parsimonious, simplest by itself, without starting to get into the complication of how it appears as matter, the most simple thing that we can say about our reality, forget about for now what the cat thinks or what the, Three fields, or what the stone has, we'll come back to that. <laughs> but let's see, from our perspective, one thing we're sure about, and this comes back to Descartes, "Cogito ergo sum," which is so familiar and so spoken about, is really consciousness. That's the one thing. When you look at the physical reality, and you see what scientists gave us and what science gave us after rejecting philosophy because of its different opinions, contradicting thoughts, not a sense of reality and all of that. We're going to do the scientific method and follow it systematically. What did they find? They came out with quantum mechanics and beyond quantum mechanics with field theory, quantum field theory, where everything is field, where things are superposed on each other, superposition of states, superposition of entanglement, Coexistence non locality and so that didn't know where to go with all of this, so they had the Copenhagen interpretation then okay they saw the multiverse and all of that, and so what happens in the study of matter. Is deconstructing matter into the physical reality, and now the physical reality is being deconstructed into fields. And ultimately, these fields are being unified, we don't have yet a fully unified field theory, but we have electromagnetism, the electroweak, and the grand unification is at the door, and one complete unification if we put the gravitational field in it. We come to a field, what is a field, as you started saying, it's a mathematical construct, so if you try to go to the essence of things, you find that matter vanishes in front of your eyes if you go to like our sense of experience the world that we see is just a figment of our imagination if you like it's a construct by our brain therefore the physical has been deconstructed and it's evaporating in front of our eyes through the method of the physical study and that's why and where you come out with bringing Plato to the Googleplex and saying, philosophy is not gonna disappear because it's science that is reaching its limits. What do we do from there? So this is one aspect.
2: I agree with everything you say, that the picture of matter that we're arriving at is very, very hard from where we started. And there's something diffuse and so complicated and we don't know how to interpret it. What's it telling us about reality? It's certainly not the notion of matter that we began with this hard and fast and solid, but yet I'm not ready to give up on it. It's getting us incredibly far. We depend on this new notion of matter. I know the people who are working on quantum computation it allows us to make predictions that we would not have been able to otherwise make. I mean, that's basically my very practical tie to matter, you know, and to, and to science, giving us a picture of matter. It allows us to do things. It increases our power for better or for worse, give us the wisdom to use this power in the right way. But in that sense we're touching reality, I would say, with our science, with our picture of matter, it's just we're not getting the whole of it. You know, we know we're not because we know we are matter that's conscious. Otherwise, how is our power so increased through physics?
1: Because physics is real, absolutely real. I'm not denying this, but (laughs) absolutely real. So, you know, let's for our listeners to just say, that we are discussing two different aspects of consciousness. One is the panpsychists, which says that matter has consciousness, which means in a way it's a bit actually still dualistic, but accepts consciousness at the elementary level of reality. And the ultimate idealist monist, who says that actually consciousness is all there is, And then comes the questions that Dr. Goldstein, Rebecca, she told me I could call her Rebecca, it's my joy, (laughs) that Rebecca says is, how does it become physical? Are you saying everything is an illusion? And so what we have now is the hard problem of physicality in case we take the opinion that consciousness is the primary substance. Now, I know you've addressed in a profound way, formalism and axiomatic approach, and that in the physical sciences and all that, we shouldn't use that, you know, we have Kurt Gödel's beautiful incompleteness that you have gone deeply into, but are we allowed, based on what you just discussed, to say that assuming that consciousness is primary is not just an axiomatic idea, but actually based on some empirical findings the least of which is we are conscious we see the whole universe through consciousness without consciousness we cannot dream we cannot love we cannot even analyze the universe and that any sensing if we can now start introducing something a little more and call it that consciousness is not an all or nothing phenomenon it's not an all or none phenomenon which means either you have it or you don't have it but start defining it along a range and in that range, there is thinking, a thought that is experiencing. It's a different thing. And there is sensing, even on the level of, for example, sensing the sun rays by a tree or even a Geiger counter sensing the radioactive material. And we would say this is along the range of consciousness from its highest value in human beings that we know today, maybe there is higher, but let's stick with what we are all the way to any phenomenon in which there is an exchange or a sensing so that even if a stone is dropped and therefore reacts to the force of gravity what we are saying is that this is a meager limited infinitesimally small almost nothing to do with human consciousness and yet It is experiencing the field of gravity. And we are going to say that consciousness, the range of consciousness starts from this infinitesimally minor small value of just sensing. And and of course, the stone doesn't have a sense of self, doesn't have a feeling, doesn't get afraid that it's gonna break, or it doesn't feel pain, doesn't feel anything. It just senses gravity and goes to gravity. It doesn't go by choice, it has no choice, it has nothing, and all the way to what we know as human consciousness today. And let's say that this is the range of consciousness. Now we are expanding the definition, which will allow us to enter into different logics about how consciousness appears as different things and different matter.
2: Yeah, yeah. So here, is what I'm realizing. I knew this was going to be an interesting discussion. Our two views collapse into each other. There is actually no difference between them. Wonderful. Um, yeah, because I too say that whatever this mysterious matter is, if there is this, pro, you know, what I call proto-consciousness, which you have described extremely well, that it's not consciousness as we experience at the sort of Where we know what we're experiencing, the self consciousness, or we ourselves actually experience all different levels of consciousness. Uh, Leibniz, the great seventeenth century Leibniz, talks about this: that you're you're at the ocean and you're not aware that you even hear in the background that the waves are pounding. But if it stops, then you notice it. You're hearing it, but you're not aware that you're hearing it. I mean, we ourselves experience multi levels of consciousness, and so we can just imagine going further down to, you know, things that we would call unconscious, you would like to attribute consciousness to the falling stone. And, and I too would, right? I, I think, in fact, I think the two views probably merge together. And I'm holding on to the word matter, and you're letting it go. I actually think there's not much to differentiate our viewpoints here.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. It's yeah. a delight to hear that. And I'll bring matter into the picture, so (laughs) let's take our trip then to the following. Having established some fundamentals to what I think is going by the Occam's razor, you know, that's the simplest, the least complicated. And in my mind, the simplest, least complicated aspect of ultimate reality is consciousness. Because we have it, we know it physical material is through consciousness, and it's so changing, we've discovered it to be so shifty, (laughs) so always changing, that we don't know what it is, it's like, where does it come from? So empirically, we can kind of say, okay, we can start there. Now you have the heart problem, explain to me how matter arises, and don't tell me it's just an illusion, or it's a whatever, hologram, or we are being in a matrix kind of situation where we are being manipulated and it's all imagination. So explain to me how this consciousness is going to lead to what we know to be also real. We're not rejecting the fact that reality is there, but. The umwelt from the german which means the environment and that is one way of defining like different people have different experiences different animals so reality is different in different states of consciousness and we know the bat you know doesn't see but it hears it has radar we go back to Nagel. what is it like to be a bat and all of that, what is it like to be a cat? We can imagine and give them a sense of consciousness and say, now we are accepting more and more consciousness in a wider range of aspects of the physical and the material reality. So on this, we are, I think, agreeing.
2: Okay, so one point, actually just one, you know, we do know what consciousness is like in ourselves, we assume in one another, animals to some extent, but, you know, when we go down to these, what we're hypothesizing, this.
1: The stone falling.
2: Yeah, yeah. We really, you know, they're two complete mystery, right? We're using the word and we're hypothesizing a continuity from lower to higher, but we really, the mind boggles on what it is we're actually imputing into things like the stone, mud, right? The mind just goes blank. Because, you know, what we usually mean is that there are facts about what it's like to be that thing, what it's like for that thing to be in the world. That is our grasp of what consciousness means, the thing that we know so intimately. If we're subtracting from this notion so much that that definition no longer makes sense, then to me consciousness loses its content.
1: The fact that we cannot tell what the stone feels like, it does not take from the stone its own reality. It's like only our consciousness can grasp a certain range of what it is like or what it would be like. So our consciousness is also limited and therefore, the fact that we cannot know what is the consciousness of any individual, because you know, we can always have this solipsistic kind of <laughs> point of view, or like everybody else is zombie except myself, we cannot. It's just this is part of this reality of consciousness being very personal in a sense. So the fact that we cannot actually define exactly what it is like to be a bat, doesn't remove from the bat being a bat and knowing what it is to be a bat. Therefore, it's just that consciousness, while all permeating in a range of its reality from meager, minimal consciousness to consciousness of awake state. And actually, our reality, even if we look at it as humans, we do have, as you said beautifully, also different states of consciousness. We can be drowsy we can be awake and alert we can have a broad comprehension suddenly we see everything clear or suddenly we are focused and stressed and we don't see except a minor aspect of reality what we call tunneling and we've seen people tunneling their vision under stress Pilots, for example, when they are under stress, their vision tunnels and they see only small aspect of reality and they can neglect very important other aspects if they are under danger. So we know that we know also that we have dream state of consciousness, which is illusionary where we feel it's real and everything is absolutely there, but it's not we do have what I call the sleep state of consciousness. Now that is a very interesting thing. Are we conscious during sleep? Yeah, we are a conscious being, we are not aware, but we are a conscious being. How do we know? Well, if the temperature changes in the room, you will be turning and covering yourself even while you're still sleeping, or you will wake up and be reacting to that. So that is a minimal state of consciousness, but not so minimal as to experience what a cat is experiencing or certainly a stone is experiencing but our physiology is experiencing our physiology is experiencing and is ready to wake us up in order to take care of situations and dangers so that level of consciousness which is minimal compared to a waking alert broad consciousness is also there so somehow as human beings we know what it is like to be conscious without being awake and aware because our body is conscious.
2: Yeah, not being conscious of our being conscious. Yeah, as you say, the evidence for that is that we react to the environment as bats react to their environment so that we know that they are experiencing something. I mean, consciousness gives us this flexibility, I would say evolved in order for us to be able to react to our environment. So two points, I mean, that I get out of your wonderfully uh, describing. One is that you would say for all of material things, there is something that it is like to be them. That's the essence of consciousness, that there's something that it's like to be it. And if we subtract that, but yet impute some form of lower consciousness without that, then I don't know what we're talking about, but you're not subtracting that. You're saying, no, no, we're keeping this essential element of consciousness so that there is something it's like to be all of the things. So that's number one. My reaction to that is, oh, no, then I am abusing all these things. There's something that it's like to be that, you know, I'm sitting on this chair. And how dare I, I wouldn't sit on you without have <laughs> your permission, right? I don't know how to live in the world. If I've taken it for granted, there's nothing that it's like to be material objects. And so I can use them and abuse them as I will. And what a thought, you know, that I would not abuse an animal, right? One of the terrible sins the way we abuse animals, because there is something that it's like to be them. But if there's something that it's like to be everything, I just want to sit very quietly in a corner and not move. Well, okay, maybe react to that and tell me why I shouldn't be afraid of abusing material objects.
1: (laughs) That will bring us to another topic, which we can still take. You know, I'm delighted with the essence of a chair. You know, what is the essence that brings us to quiddities, noumena, etc. But you know, we, we can discuss this. But let's say there is an essence for a chair, and let's say. For the chair, the essence is that you sit on it.
2: Yeah, from my point of view, maybe not from the chair's point of view.
1: I don't know, you don't know, I don't know, but why that one is assuming that the chair is suffering when it's fulfilling its vocation of being a chair, it's probably delighted. So we have, to also, we have to also take that argument because we are seeing things from an anthropomorphic point of view. Everything is like humans and humans are the center of the universe. And everything should feel and think and react like we are because if somebody sits on me, I am upset. But a chair is made to be sit on and maybe if you leave it alone, it will be upset. Who knows? So-
2: <laughs> It reminds me, of, when I was in first grade, we had a play the gingerbread man. And I had the lead part for the girl, which is the little old lady who made the gingerbread. And in this story, the gingerbread man runs away from the little old lady because it's conscious and it doesn't want to be eaten. And then at the end of the story, it realizes, oh no, it was made to be eaten. I didn't like that ending of that story. I was very glad to have the lead part for the little girl, but I didn't like this story because it was I mean, once we attribute an independent perspective and an independent point of view to something, well then, who knows? I mean, what its point of view is. I mean, we created this thing uh, for our own purposes. So the definition of a chair is, from our point of view, it's functionality. A chair is something that was made to be sat on or that one could sit on. Once one attributes a point of view to it, its own perspective, then who knows? I mean, this is of course the great difficulty in our dealing with one another. We would like to be able to think of other people in terms of our purposes for them, but once you grant the autonomy of consciousness to anything, certain things follow from that. And I don't think you can define them in terms of their functionality to us. Once there's autonomy, that's forbidden. It has its own purposes and can't be defined in terms of our
1: purposes. Yes, absolutely. But the question is, we shouldn't assume otherwise either. We shouldn't assume that we are projecting the idea of a chair on a chair, but what does the chair feel? Now, having said that, it's just to go back. The chair has nowhere near, according to the thinking we are discussing in the range of consciousness, has nowhere near the sensitivity, the feeling, the experience, the sense of self, the sense of being damaged or mistreated or anything. Absolutely not. And this is where we have to allow our awareness to broaden its understanding of consciousness, that it is not just like human consciousness. It's just a sense for the chair, maybe the chair as an entity, as a whole, Really doesn't feel anything. It's just the molecules and the physical matter that feels the weight of one person sitting on it. It doesn't even have necessarily the sense of connectedness between its components. It doesn't have a nervous system that tells the leg of a chair that there is a back of a chair, that there is a seat of a chair. It doesn't. They're not connected. And so, so, so no
2: unified point of view, you're saying, it's right. sort of, um, well, well, then we're again, beginning to articulate the notion of consciousness. I mean, one of the things about our experience, there's a unity there, and now you are articulating because of the lack of sophistication.
1: Communication, connectedness.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, it's like one bit talking to another bit, to another bit, then they have a combined bits not to get now into the combination problem because yeah. we haven't, we haven't yeah. reached that yet. But the fact that that's why I mentioned the nervous system, it's because actually they talk to each other, these different parts. And so they're aware of what they're doing. And that's what creates a sense of unity and wholeness, which we don't have in an element like a chair, for example. It doesn't have a sense, but it does have a sense of gravity and electromagnetism, etc. <laughs>
2: i trying to imagine what this would be like, but okay, yeah, okay,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, it might not be what it would be like to be a chair as such and be conscious as a chair, but these are the elements. And in my perspective of like our consciousness as human beings is that we are, as we know from science, we are a collection of bits and modes of consciousness that come together to create a sense of me and I, Whereas we know from split brain studies and damage to different parts of the brain that there are many, many inhabitants of this nervous system that suddenly talk to each other and give us the sense of oneness and unity. I'd like, if you don't mind, to go back to the paradigm that I would like to present to you, the thinking of, okay, we have one consciousness. There is an unbounded consciousness let's call it the unified field. Let's call it a field of consciousness, which is the starting point of what reality is. We're deciding that this is acceptable empirically on basis on some things. It's not certain, it's not a demonstrated thing, but it's acceptable to start there.
2: The hypothesis, and we're gonna see how far we can get with it.
1: Exactly. Now, this consciousness exists in itself by itself, so it's, you know, cosa sui, if you like, existing within itself and its consciousness, just unbounded consciousness.
2: Is it conscious? Is the whole of this consciousness conscious of itself or no?
1: Exactly, that comes the question. Yes. So, is it conscious of itself? Yeah. Okay, well, we're calling it consciousness because it is conscious. Otherwise, we'd call it living or being or whatever, existence or something. So we're calling it consciousness to assume that it is conscious. Yes. Well, what is it conscious of? It's the primary thing, there is nothing else. We've bypassed the Big Bang, we are into the field of, between quotation mark nothingness, except for that consciousness, which we are saying is not material, is not physical. It's just a field of consciousness, which is, again, beyond time and space, there is no time, there is no space. What is it conscious of? it can only be conscious of itself because there is Mm -hmm. nothing else Mm -hmm. now what does it mean to be conscious of oneself it means there is an observer that observes an object and there is a process that connects the observer to the observed so there is the observer the silent seer if you like that looks at itself and sees itself as an object of observation through some process of dynamic observation so what happens in this is the unity of this unbounded one consciousness has now flavors within itself and since it is conscious it can be conscious in an infinite number of ways now this brings us a little bit to plato but with a quotation mark and a change because plato saw that there are these forms that are perfect well i think that It was not just the forms that are perfect that consciousness can see what it sees is all possibilities of ways to be conscious. So in this absolute let's call it absolute pure existence, because it is consciousness its nature is to be conscious and to be conscious in all possible ways and therefore within that unmanifest beyond time and space it has a flash of all possibilities which means you and i are also there when we were young when we were old plus the possibility of you now being and where i am and me being where you are for you to be a scientist for me to be a painter or a philosopher or anything for me to be young, to be old, for you to be the queen of the universe, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's all there, but it's all there as pictures in this hard disk, if you like, an infinite disk of possibilities, and all of these are perceived in an imaginary way, if you like, suppose there is that infinite fantasmagoria, this imagination, None of this is real, real in terms of what we call real, but in terms of experience, this consciousness contains all these possibilities. Now, this is the difference with Plato's ideal forms, is that these forms are all that there is, all that there ever be or that can ever exist are already just a play within that consciousness, an imagination so this is one aspect
2: have you read spinoza yeah yeah this is closer than plato this is spinoza so this is
1: pantheism uh, but the difference is that we're not saying god or no god we're just saying consciousness
2: but he just whatever this ultimate infinity is right he called it God, you can call it God, you can call it nature. It's the deus Sive natura. It's right. the thing that can be conceived in these two different ways. He was living in the 17th century. You had to get God in there some way or right. other.
1: Otherwise you get in trouble.
2: Yeah, we already got in trouble. Got in trouble. In trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. But I mean, they caught on to him. Right? <laughs> they saw what he... So this is a view that I like very, very much. So please continue. <laughs> yes, it, I like this very much. <laughs>
1: So I wondered in my thinking, and by the way, this is of course not the idea that consciousness is all there is. is never new. We have the Vedantic, uh, you know, we have Parmenides, we have, you know, even Spinoza and all of that.
2: When I was explaining Spinoza to my husband, uh, he said, "Oh, he was a blue Jew, you're, you're a, Buddha, a Buddhist Jew, right? Because it is. He was the first blue Jew, right? Because it is. It is a very." It's consistent with Buddhism, I would
1: say, yeah. So here is that consciousness, which wants to be conscious in every possible way, experiencing all these possibilities, like pictures in a hard disk, but there is no story. You know, you could raise your right hand, left hand, both pictures are there in that hard disk. You could grow older and then get younger, uh, or pictures. They are just pictures, they are just pictures. And that consciousness knows them all to be a figment of its imagination, or not a figment, phantasmagoria.
2: One no more real than the other.
1: Right, one no more real than the other. All possibilities, including Zeus and Apollo and uh, Aphrodite and all this, whether they exist or not, whether they ever become real or not, doesn't matter. It's just there. Right. Anything you can imagine or not imagine, any possibility or beyond possibilities, is there.
2: Well, we call in physics, uh, configurational space. You know, the all, all possibilities before the measurement is done. And
1: exactly. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. In a flash, it's all there. Now, what it doesn't know? What does this consciousness not know? Well, it sees all of that. What is it that it doesn't know? Because it is infinite. It sees all of that in one flash. It has everything. What it doesn't know is the main question that we come back to. What it is like to truly be Rebecca? What it is like to be Tony? What is it like to be a sunflower? What it is like to be one of those pictures or the other? What is it like to be? It doesn't know. Why? Because it has that wide vision And it doesn't know what it is like to forget its infinity and puts itself in the shoes of a bat, what is it like it doesn't know. So we are assigning between quotation mark ignorance in a sense to that uh, reality, and this is where it is different in a sense at that point of view from what one could say you know a god sitting there observing deciding making right, right, things right. happen yeah.
2: yeah so it knows what it's like to be itself right it's infinity that knows what it's like to be infinite right uh, but it doesn't know what it's like to be a finite thing
1: exactly yeah mm-hmm. since since its nature is to know in every possible way to be conscious in every possible way it actually has no choice But to start knowing from limited perspectives also, in a sense, I mean, it has no choice, we can decide about that. Now, what it does is puts itself in the shoes of these aspects of potentiality. Now, you can say, well, but there are many that are contradictory, you know, there is some where I am old and there's a young and this and that. it has to separate them also because they are all in a flash. In, in a flash, That consciousness has that possibility to see everything in a flash. They are coexisting. And therefore, in some way, they annihilate each other because if you raise your hand and lower your hand, so which one you did? Is the Schrödinger cat alive or is the Schrödinger cat dead? You know, For it, it's no problem. They're both there. They are pictures. They are there in its vision. But which one is going to happen? When is it going to happen? It has to separate them. The way it separates them is by slowing down its ability to see everything in a flash and see things in a sequential form. And this is where time arises. And in a separate form, this is where space arises. So space and time are the means to separate these actual entities that it is seeing in a flash and it has to put itself in the shoes of each and has also to let them evolve in their own way and this is why freedom is a necessity according to this vision (laughs) and freedom requires choice so it requires higher consciousness We'll get we'll get to that at the beginning, at the most fundamental level, freedom is randomness because there is no ability to choose. There is not enough consciousness in the smallest particles of reality that they can actually make a choice based on analysis and all that.
2: But the infinite is choosing to find out, to discover the infinite is like us (laughs) wants to know. Um, what it's like uh, to be each one of these finitudes. Exactly. And it wants to know what it's like to be all of the finitudes, or does it choose among the finitudes? Because as you say, they contradict each other.
1: Yeah, it's going to let them be and then see what happens. All of them. Yeah, not all of them together in a sequential form. It starts from the smallest. It starts from actually nothingness. So I have also in in my discussion, why is nothingness and nothingness is what separates between objects, either in time or in space, otherwise they are together. If there is not nothingness or the concept of nothingness, then everything is merged because, you know, we imagine that you are different from me because there is nothingness between us, there is space and there is time and therefore we are different. In essence, in true reality, we are all that consciousness, but trying to see what it is like to be Rebecca, what it is like to be Tony, and in order to, you know, to say that there is a Rebecca and there is a Tony, it separates us in space and time, so it just spontaneously has to do that and separate these individual entities from each other.
2: Not all at the same time.
1: Right, it starts actually from nothing, because that's the worst thing for it, (laughs) is to be nothing. And it actually manifests nothing. And that's how the Big Bang actually starts, with laws and forces and like that. And then appears the most meager, lowest level of consciousness. And they are allowed to interact with each other yeah. an experience So it,
2: it starts with nothing and so what it does is try to know what it's like to be nothing
1: yeah what it's like to be nothing and what it's like it, to be the smallest from nothing on so if we say the range of consciousness it's from nothing to infinity it's starting there it's experience from nothing and see how it builds up towards infinity or not.
2: You're committed to the view that there is something that it's like to be nothing.
1: Only in the manifest reality, in the unmanifest. You know, because my perception is consciousness is all there is. Consciousness is all there is. So if there is no consciousness, that's the only thing that is non-existent, non-real. But it becomes real as a phenomenon as an imagination in the manifest realm, in the manifest universe. And the manifest universe only means time, space, and individual individuality rather than infinity.
2: I want to get your whole picture, and so I uh, forgive me for... Can't we just use space and time for this individuation? I mean, I think it was Einstein who said, you know, time is the thing that makes sure that everything doesn't happen at the at once, right, it's something like, you know, and space is the thing that keeps everything happening all together, right, so the reification in some sense of nothing is blocking me here, I. I we can
1: use time and space because actually time and space are uh, the concept of nothing in between two objects.
2: Okay yeah.
1: Either in space, so they exist together, but there is nothing in between, that space, or they exist one after the other, even in the same space, if you like. You know, if you have, if you have one chair, one chair, hundred people can sit in that chair, but they cannot sit at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you create the space of time, the time element. The time element allows you to occupy the same space, but at a different time. Right, so the space element allows you to occupy at the same time different places at the same time to be together at the same time you need space.
2: So I mean it seems to me and, of course, modern modern physics, you know ever since Einstein we don't say it's space and time we say it's space time right? right I mean it's right. really one construction.
1: Exactly uh, Whose
2: mathematical structure, we know.
1: So we don't really need, you know, as you say, to create the idea of nothingness because yeah. it's inherent within space and time. Exactly, exactly. Know? And that's why I'm saying in, in the concept of space and time, we perceive nothingness. You know, although everything is a field, you know, we are one field and, you know, according to quantum field theory, but we perceive nothingness as an in-between. Otherwise, how could we be a different object if there is... Right. Right. Nothing that separates us. What is that nothing? Space or time? <laughs> <laughs> so, this is how actually this is the beginning of what we call manifestation. So, what is manifestation? If the other was an absolute unmanifest infinite potential of vision, what is manifestation? Manifestation is simply the ability to see things from a limited perspective how many limited perspectives there are almost infinite so they will have to appear real for that perspective because otherwise if it's you know then you're not experiencing things from that perspective so how do they appear real they appear real as a tree a person you know myself yourself somebody else and we are convinced that You know that's real so this is some of the ways consciousness in a limited shoes and sitting in a limited perspective sees or experiences different aspects of itself and it is true to itself it's genuine otherwise if not you know if if we are able to see the unified field if we are able to see that you and me are just consciousness and nothing else, then we're not seeing truly from these limited perspectives. So these limited perspectives are real and they're part of what is actually the between quotation mark purpose. We're getting into that, uh, you know, purposeful without intention, but we don't want to complicate things too much. This is how we see a car we see a human being and it's not just an appearance it's not an illusion it is one way of seeing reality from one perspective of an observer looking at another aspect of what would be an object of observation so the dynamics of consciousness make us see this as real And they are real on their level, they are real on their level.
2: But not all at the same time. Every single possibility is actualized according to its own internal causality.
1: Yes, and its choices, you know, because it is left on its own. And I have also a reasoning for the laws of nature, how they emerge, why there is law in a very simple way also, so we can go to the why of things also, and also to the meaning of life, and the normative questions, and what ought to be, what ought not to be, and why good, and why bad, and all of that, so it all follows from that simple, most simple starting point of consciousness being conscious of itself, and so, you know, it was spinoza's conatus right which is the will to be the will to continue Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i would just adjust it a little bit and i think you like that because you you like the epistemic responsibility that we have and you know the fact that uh, you know knowing is the greatest thing and that spinoza said it's the most beautiful thing to increase the knowledge and that's what you're doing that's what you're passionate about is And that's what everyone is actually about. It's about knowing more, knowing more, knowing everything is about knowing more. And it's the knowing more that pushes us to continue the will to continue. I would put before that will to continue the will to know.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Because that is part of the nature of reality as defined in the paradigm we are presenting because we are starting with consciousness what is the nature of consciousness is to be conscious to be conscious in every possible way so that is the motor that is the engine right of what is going on
2: yeah so i mean for him kunetas is the striving to persist and to flourish and to flourish for spinoza like for you it's to know right
1: and that's right. what
2: flourishing is yeah yes yeah
1: so you can say to persist first, or you can say you have to persist because you want to know. <laughs> exactly,
2: exactly. And, and you know, when we are not flourishing, we, you know, when we feel no hope for flourishing, which is almost the definition of despair, we don't want to persist anymore. I mean, exactly. you know, this is a sad fact, you know, that there are people who do not want to persist.
1: That's depression and that's... That
2: is depression, yeah.
1: Suicide and that, yeah.
2: Exactly. Yes. That is the inversion, the negation of conitas, you know? Yes. uh, Yeah. But yes, no, I quite agree. We all want to know. I mean, I, I see this as something special about our species, but I think you see it more widely distributed because it is a feature of consciousness. And for you, consciousness is the all. So it would be Equitably distributed throughout reality.
1: It follows.
2: (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. It follows from the starting point. And, you know, that's how, from my perspective, and like to discuss this more with you as much as possible, that there is a continuum in that and explaining not only the reality of manifestation, but also the meaning of life, the good and bad, why there is freedom but at the same time law and order and you know the the simplicity of it and addressing these points is what fascinates me and the explanatory power of it is there i mean we can look at it more in detail
2: yes um so i would love to discuss specifically the problem of of freedom in the context that you've presented because there is a certain kind of same problem arises with Spinoza, a certain kind of deterministic aspect uh, to this vision of, of reality. And so how one accommodates freedom, which we must. Yeah. Must accommodate freedom somehow. But could we do it another time?
1: I'd love to. I'd love yes. to Yes.
2: I would love to discuss freedom, good and evil. Yeah. The purpose of our lives with you further.
1: Wonderful. I'm looking forward. Just a quick point. It's freedom and determinism, without being it a compatibilistic kind of freedom, where we kind of, uh, you know, schmooze it around.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: There is determinism on the global level, but in time and space there is freedom, but what you decide today is going to have an implication, so you do actually have ontological real freedom, but within time and space until you create an effect that has to have its cause and you will meet one day or the other, the result of your action. Mm -hmm. So that is where the determinism is and it's time and space that allows us to perceive freedom and a true freedom. You live it, you do it, you choose it. But if you plant a mango tree, you're gonna get mangoes in five years. You're not gonna get apples.
2: Right, the infinite in playing out what is it like to be the infinite number of finite beings? Um, You know, you would say that, you know, part of what it's doing in that is it separates it out sequentially and sees how it plays out.
1: Right. And
2: so hidden in that language, how it plays out, is the question of does it play out in a deterministic way or, and you would say, It doesn't. Yeah, yeah that you're allowing for the efficacy of choice, of decision. Yes, yes, yes. absolutely. Yes, which is absolutely. really what we want from freedom. I agree. Absolutely. Compatibilism stuff is like nothing, right? It's you no. Know, we want the efficacy of choice.
1: Yeah. efficacy of choice is there. Yeah. And it has a good reason why it's there. Basically in two words, if it doesn't, then it's part of a machine and it's no more giving any, any knowledge of experience so the whole purpose of experiencing something from its small perspective is lost because if it's all determined then that absolute knows exactly what's going to happen
2: yes it's going to know exactly what's going to happen it still may not know what it's like to undergo the process right so it would still have this ignorance yeah before it enters into the plane out right but it would know from the outside what the outcome would be
1: right exactly but it has there is an added value to see how does it play out yeah so even knowing that has a significance
2: you are the 21st century's spinoza i would say (laughs) you know (laughs) with all of the, the the science that he living at the very beginning of you know the modern science wasn't privy to know as somebody who lives in the 21st century is, but it's that same, it's a the vision, only now informed by science, you know, everything we've learned since then.
1: Wonderful. You brought Plato to the 21st century, and I have happened to be schooled a little bit also by the fifth millennium BC, BCE, you know, by going to the Vedantic knowledge and being with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and learning about some of these concepts and then putting them together like that so i also was schooled in ancient knowledge and read and and looked at that and have to put this conundrum together and find a solution so it's great to talk to someone like you and get the feedback and think through it it's really wonderful
2: yes it's it's what it's what our lives really ought to (laughs) to be about, yes, (laughs) yes, yes, it's hard to do everything on one's own, we need one another.
1: After all, it's the one consciousness, and the more and more we realize what the self is, we find that everyone is myself in a certain way, and when we get to that, we gain greater ability to create evolution and progress, because together we can do more than just small individual exactly
2: exactly i mean if we all want to flourish yeah communally uh, yeah. we all need to flourish yes. right that's the practical problem maybe someday we'll get around to uh to discussing that how we get everybody on the same page here
1: wonderful looking forward it's really a delight
2: yes a great delight to speak with you
0: thank you for tuning into dr tony nader the podcast And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.